Okay, y'all, turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to look at Job 1 and 2. All right, the first question was received, and one came on Tuesday in the Job question box era. So if you do have a question as we start marching through Job, write it down, put it in the box. Uh, Chances are pretty good that it'll get responded to publicly, like right now. Um, Here's the first question. The last part of it went like this. I'm scared that God is being made responsible for all that is happening. Satan, Job's faith, etc. Which makes this a sort of sick prescripted game. Or torture without purpose or love redemption of Job that is forced and meaningless. Okay, we've just started with a a bang, haven't we? Now, I must confess, I didn't expect my envisioning of what the first question was going to be was going to be something more along these lines. Are you ready? I just have to say, wow. (laughs) You blew me away in Job 1 and 2 last week. In fact, you were so incredible, Jeff, that I no longer have any questions any struggles, not just in Job, but in my life, my family's life, everyone's life. You are my hero. Have a great week, hero. Sign sincerely or Sally sincere, PhD in everything. This is a great question to start off because this question really does get at the heart of Job. This question is getting at the heart of God's power, sovereignty control, and God's goodness, his beauty, his love, his grace. And how these two wonders of God exist in God in the context of a real friendship with him, in the context of of deep personal suffering and evil. So this is theology on fire stuff. This isn't theology on ice stuff. This is real stuff. So what we're going to do this week and next week, particularly next week, we're going to dive into the deep waters of the problem of evil. Okay? Last week, what did we do? Last week, we looked at friendship with God from our side. Today, we're going to look at friendship with God on God's side. Next week, we're going to see how our side and God's side cosmically interact. It's better than Shark Week. This is the problem of evil we're going to try to tackle, and we're going to take a zoomed-in, up-close look at that interaction, okay? So the nitty-gritty of the problem of evil will be tackled this week, but, but today, we're setting a plan for dealing with it. And here's the reason why. The process in God's economy is actually more important than the end product. Here's what I mean. The mystery of a relationship with God and wrestling with God, learning, growing in your reliance and your rest and your rejoicing in him is more vital and at the beat of God's heart than him dispensing cosmic answers to your questions. And that most of the answers are wrapped up in the mystery of the relationship. Okay? So the best wrestlers 
with God are the psalmists, right? And what we did last week is here's the plan. I want you to always keep this plan as we go through Job. If you go off this plan, you're doomed. You'll be swept away by Job. You'll be swept away by evil. You'll be swept away by your circumstances. You'll be swept away by your relation. You'll be swept away. Here's the deal. The psalmists give us a third option to deal with our, our thoughts and our feelings. Now, there are two options out there for us, and, and we just heard from one that has taken over Scotland. The religious way to deal with your thoughts and your emotions is to stuff them, deny them, because the goal of religion of that way is maintaining control and order and standards and self-reliance and self-righteousness, right? The other way, though, is not the way either to deal with your thoughts and your feelings, and that is to vent them, to bow down to your thoughts and your feelings, to be defined by them, ruled by them, because the goal of the irreligious way is to indulge yourself, to pull the plug and the restraints out of yourself, to let the unrestrained self do whatever it wants. Okay? The third way, the gospel way to deal with your thoughts and your feelings is to pray them. Pray your fears. Pray your confusion. Pray your doubts. Pray your questions. Pray your frustrations. Pray your anger. Pray them. Okay? If we follow the third way with Job right now, we would pray something like this. Oh, Lord, are you really a good friend? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Okay, we are going to start at verse 13 of chapter 1. 6 through 12, we read that last week. That is the heavenly court. And then what happens there echoes in the earthly realm. And that's where we're going to pick things up, okay? Uh, Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them, took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone had escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Scene 2 in the heavenly court. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. We're not told. It's a day. It happens sometime after what just happened. And the Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down on it. Remember, that is the the image that should be conjured up in your mind from that phraseology is a lion on the hunt. All right. 
And the Lord said to the Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth. Now, that does not mean that while he's hunting, God says, hey, man, have you tried Job yet? The point is, you've been hunting Job, right? That's the point. Um, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, man, skin for skin. All that the man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores. Those are probably elephantitis or some form of leprosy. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, would you give us help to hear? And would you give me help to speak? Uh, Would you show up, Jesus, producing justifying grace and sanctifying grace on the spot? We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, look at Job chapter 1, verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in the wine of their older brother's house. The movement that just took place from 12 to 13 is a cosmic shift from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm. Remember again that the Lord in the beginning of Genesis created the heavens, the invisible heavens and the visible earth. So it's one created realm to another created realm, but the chasm is cosmic. Right? So all of a sudden, the, sh- the scene has shifted, and we land right in the middle as if we're invited to a birthday bash. And a birthday bash in the ancient Near East is a bash. It's not a day, or it's not a half a day. It's not from 10 to 12 with cakes and horns, and then please get out of my house. It is weeks, well, days, several days, possibly a week, of celebrating uh, a birthday. Um, we're invited to this big birthday bash, and it's the biggest celebration of the year in Job's household. Why? Thank you for asking, because it's the firstborn son's birthday. Now, many of us, when we hear the firstborn son and are familiar with the ancient Near East and familiar with the Old Testament, we kind of get this, oh, man, what's the deal? There's so much favoritism over this firstborn son. You know, it's the firstborn son, and then Sally, yeah, there's Sally, and there's Jim, and there's Bob. And junior. But the firstborn son, it's like everything. Like his significance is off the charts, and then everybody else is emotionally damaged from this family favoritism, right? That's what it seems like. But what we need to realize is this the issue isn't um, the issue isn't family favoritism. The issue is family favoritism. Here's what I mean. In the ancient Near East, if you were pursuing your meaning and your identity, your value, and your hopes and dreams in life, you know what you do? You don't do what we do today. What do we do today? We look for individual distinction. 
We've got to distinguish ourselves from other people. So we are about finding our value and our identity and our hopes and dreams are packed into success, personal success, some sort of accomplishment and attainment that distinguishes us from others so that we have meaning and value, right? Well, in the ancient Near East, it wasn't individual distinction. It was family distinction. Family honor, family success, family accomplishment, family security, family prosperity. And here's the point. The firstborn son represented the family. The family was the firstborn son. Everyone's hopes and dreams and identity and meaning and value was held or on the line by the heir. So, the Satan picked a pretty good day to blindside Job. The firstborn son's birthday bash, right? Verses 14 through 19 of chapter 1, just look, look at them, are like hammers of doom. They're like huge hammers that are just cutting swaths through the life of Job. The word for, these are four hammers of doom. The word for symbolizes complete, perfect destruction. He has nothing left. Sure, it hits his career and his prestige and his recognition. It's his servants. It's his loved ones. And don't think that because there are four servants left, and then we're going to see that his wife is left, as if that was just some sort of uh, mercy. No. Uh, Those have strategic value for the Satan. That's the only reason why they're left. Or they would have been wiped out too. So we have four disasters of an equal mix. Remember we've talked about rational evil and irrational evil or personal evil and natural evil. We have a mix of them perfectly. Two of each. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, personal evil. Then over here we got natural evil and we've got lightning with massive fires on the plains that no animal or man could outrun. And then we have an F5 tornado, right? And then we notice what's happening here is that these four swings... These hammers of doom come from every point on the compass, north, south, east, and west. Job has no safe place. He is surrounded, encircled by doom from every point of the globe. Uh, Each of the four disasters... uh, miraculously leave a lone survivor someone to report the doom right there's their strategic value the worst one is the last one verse 18 your sons and daughters were eating and drinking and we get the picture what happens there lost now um i am a parent of five children many of you have children many of you are about to have children i can tell you and those who Our parents can tell you that there would be or there is not a greater terror than losing your child. 
Job loses all ten at once. Now, I want you to notice how he loses them. How does he lose them? A destructive wind, right? Here's what's happened. The Satan comes along, he swings four massive hammers, and then he pulls out this dagger, and he surgically inserts it right into his heart. Because in the ancient Near East, and in the Old Testament, it's common knowledge that when God takes a tool to distribute justice upon wickedness, his tool of choice, destructive winds and fire from heaven, which we saw on the plains. So now, Job reels from the horror and the shock of all that's happening, and then this divine doubt is stuck right into his heart. Is God punishing me? My children? Have we done something wrong? Have we lost favor with him? Just a seed, just a stick of doubt. Now, sometime later, there's another interaction with God and the Satan in the heavenly court, right? And this time, though, the hunter leaves with no limits on him except the life of Job. So he can go to the person of Job and wreak havoc on him, and that's what he does in verse 7 and 8. So the Satan left the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet down to the crown of his head, and, took a, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This is a complete picture. Well, here's the picture. The first picture is this. Um, Job is called blameless throughout this book. Uh, and the narrator said it once. God said it twice. Blameless means spotless. Blameless means no blame. Blameless means no defect. Blameless means no mark. Perfection. And now he's marked. Blameless is used later on in the Old Testament for the kind of animals that must be blameless to be acceptable and approved to God for the sacrificial system. If they're not blameless animals, there's no atonement. And so an original reader of an Israelite would read this and certainly make the connection. What's going on here? He's blameless and now he's bludgeoned. He's ceremonially unclean. We mentioned what the loathsome sores were. You want to know what Job's state is at this time? He actually tells us. In Job 7, when he's talking to his friends, he describes it. You're not going to see it in your text right now, but let me tell you, this is what he says in Job 7. He says, I have nightmares. Fear stalks me in my sleep. And then he goes on to say, if I sleep, because I can't sleep. I'm sleep deprived. I can't find sleep. And then he goes on to say, I scrape with an edge of broken pottery, the dead skin and the oozing pus off my body all day. And then he says, and I'm in a severe depression. Now we're going to talk about Job's response in two weeks. But here's what I want you to see that's so, so, so interesting. Think of those responses and now think what the narrator says twice in response to Job's response. In all of this, he did not sin. So we're going to blow the doors off 
spiritual piety in two weeks. Bring your seatbelts for that one. Now, the last blow comes from his wife, and we'll spend more time on that later, but notice that there's one surviving loved one, and it's his loving, supporting wife. And she comes, not to love and support, but she actually picks up Satan's chant in each of the two occasions that the, Satan said, if you take away his prosperity, he will curse you to your face. And she says, what? Curse God and die, Job. I mean, don't jump too hard on her. This is the spirit behind what she's saying. I can't take it anymore. I just want the pain to stop. No one's ever felt that before in here, right? Our last look at Job is he's sitting on an ash heap, and that means he's in the local trash dump. He's in the garbage pit. He's in the places that aren't civilized, that aren't the place where people live because he's, he's feared to be contagious. And so now he's an outcast, all alone, sitting in a pile of trash. One scholar says, the most honored citizen has become the most offensive and rejected. Welcome to Job's world. What's the point of all this? I mean, what's going on? What's the original message that Job's supposed to get from God in his suffering right now? The original readers, when they got this, when this was written down and scripturated for the first time, and the original readers are looking at it and they're saying, what's the point here? What are we supposed to get out of this? And now we're reading it, and we're saying to ourselves, what's the message from God in all this? Well, there are, there are many, many answers given today. And the answers are legioned. And I'd like to quickly, hope you can hang on with me. I mean, hang in there. We're going to go very, very quickly in this part. I really went fast in the first service. There are several responses. There are two major ones that are usually outside the church. And then there are two that are inside the church. The two that are outside the church, I'm just going to take two that are very popular today, more Eastern kind of thought and more uh, naturalistic evolutionary kind of thought. Then we go over here to the more churched realm, and what the church realm does is it, it picks a piece of God's character and picks away at it. One, it picks away at God's power because it wants to vindicate God's goodness. The other side picks away at God's goodness and his love because it wants to vindicate his power. And so we're going to look at that. Briefly, real quick, you ready? Here's the deal. The naturalist, the evolutionist, says there is no God, there is no reality outside the universe. So stop looking to solve your problems outside yourself and outside the universe. The answers are in you and in the universe. There is no God out there. There is no reality out there. Reality, here's what reality is. Reality is the collision, the chance collision of atomic and subatomic particles. That's reality, the natural process. What happens in this collision of atomic and subatomic particles is a waste or an energy a selection, an effect. Something happens. Well, suffering and evil is just one of those energies. So Job's anguish makes no sense. 
I mean, Joe, buck up, dude. Come on. You're suffering. You're anguish. The evil that you're calling is just the normal, natural result of natural selection and process. Don't take it personally. Okay? Uh, Eastern religion says God and the universe are one. So it creates this impersonal cosmic idea, state of being, oneness. What else did I write down here? Force. You know, the whole Star Wars stuff is built on that. The goal here is to cycle up, spiral up the cycle of life. And the way you spiral up the cycle of life is through reincarnation, through meditation, self-improvement, self-awareness. And what happens is in the spiraling up the cycle of life, though, is that there are, there's immaturity in this oneness. There are uh, immature, defective aspects to this oneness in the universe. And that needs to be removed by cycling up. So evil and suffering is nothing more than immaturity and um, adolescence uh, that needs to be progressively removed through self-awareness and self-improvement. All right? Now, the Godward directions go like this. The most popular is to pick away at God's power. It goes like this. Evil and suffering exist because God is not all-powerful. He's not in control. He's not sovereign in any sense. So the Satan's evil and Job's suffering... Job has no power or control over that or is not standing behind it in any sense. Okay? Now, there are multiple variations on this. I'm not going to get to them. There's one called process the... I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. There's many spectrums of this, but I'm just going to state it broadly speaking. Uh, Picking away at God's power is probably the most popular way in the Western world. That's the one the Western world goes after is God's power. Uh, There's a rabbi named Harold Kushner who lost his son and his grief drove him to question the traditional Jewish beliefs in the power of God, an all-powerful God. Uh, He wrote a book. It sold millions. D.A. Carson said he obviously hit a nerve in the American public today. Obviously, millions are buying it. He's hit a nerve that we're all trying to answer. How can you explain evil and suffering with an all-powerful God? And the answer is, he can't be all-powerful. All right? Uh, he wrote, Kushner, I can only worship a God. I can worship a God who hates suffering, but I can't, but cannot eliminate it. Power. He's not powerful. More easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make his children suffer. All right? All right, so here's what happened. Trying to vindicate God's holiness, I mean, try to vindicate God's goodness and his love at the expense of his power. That's one way to respond. And now all we're going to do, how does Job respond to that real quick? We'll spend more time on it next week. But real quick, Job responds to that reality by giving us the heavenly court in the midst of suffering and evil. And in this heavenly court, it's real clear there's only one king. who's in control of everything, even, even the Satan's evil and Job's suffering. Job 1 and 2 is not picking away at God's power. It's establishing it. Now, 
how does God's power and how is he in control? Can we completely and do we completely understand it? That's a fair question and that's up for, that's up for, that's up for discussion. But Job is not picking away at God's power. It's establishing it in the midst of evil and suffering. All right, here's the deal. The next is the other piece. If we're going to vindicate God's love and his goodness, we're going to pick away at his power. But if the other response is evil and suffering exist because God is not loving or good. Here's the logic that goes like this. Uh, God is all-powerful and suffering and evil exist. Therefore, God doesn't care. He can't be good and he can't be loving if he can do something about it and he doesn't. I mean, come on. What parent is just going to stand there when their child is threatened by evil and they can do something about it? Only the cold, clinical, detached, unloving kind. Right? That's the kind of parent. Here's how Job responds to that. Notice uh, how God identifies Job. He calls him my servant Job. Do you see that? You know what's so fascinating about this? And this blew my mind. I mean, I wish sometimes, you know, you're studying and you come up with things and you just feel like, wow, nobody else found this. And then you go read a commentary and you're like, I won't say the word. But that's the way you feel, right? Uh, Yahweh calls Job his servant six times, two times in the prologue, four times in the epilogue. So we'll get there. But what's so fascinating about calling Job his servant, he only calls Job his servant in the context of Job's suffering. He does not call Job his servant outside the context of suffering. So Job is not just a servant He's a suffering servant. Perhaps the most recognizable title, moniker, description of the Messiah, of Jesus of Nazareth in the Old and New Testament is the suffering servant. So you have a righteous man suffering who points to the righteous man who suffers. So what's going on with Jesus? Well, Jesus is the kind of servant that what we know about Jesus is Jesus is going to be the servant that takes all evil, sin, and suffering and destroys it. John Owen, he has this wonderful book and he calls it The Death of Death. The champion takes it, eliminates it, removes it, eradicates it. And then here's the catch. How does he do that? How? By suffering. Severely. By taking all your sin and evil, and mine, and my suffering, and absorbing it in himself on the cross. 
God doesn't just stand there. He suffers. And he suffers for us by taking our own sin and our own evil that we often forget in the midst of other people's evil against us. And he takes it for us. And then he suffers with us is that he takes the full measure, the full proportion of all suffering that you face, the kind that you are self-induced, that you bring, the kind that others bring to you, and the kind that you live in a fallen, broken world that comes at you. The rational, whether it's cosmic or, or human, or the irrational, and the natural disasters, and the diseases, and everything that racks us. He takes all of it, the full measure of it, absorbs it into himself. And in that process, I mean, I can't, I have this image, I can't get rid of the image, and it comes right from Harry Potter. You might remember when Voldemort throws these, uh, all this glass starts flying at Harry Potter from a broken window. And uh, who's the, the main wizard again? Dumbledore takes all those pieces and disintegrates them. So when they hit Harry, it's just like water or fine dust. Jesus absorbs all suffering to such an extent, it actually gets sanctified by the time it hits you. And now we're back into the mystery of God. Why does he do that? What's his purposes? What's he he after? We'll just have to hold off on that. What's the point? Here's the point. The point for Job, the point for the original readers, and the point for you and me. God is saying, trust me. I'm trustworthy. I don't just stand on the sidelines. I suffer for you and I suffer with you. 150 years ago, a guy named George MacDonald wrote a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. The main character is a gal named Irene. She's eight years old and she found an attic in her house. I would have thought she would have found it like at six. That's a little late to find your attic. Anyhow, in the attic, a fairy grandmother often appears to her. And so she really likes her fairy grandmother, and so she often goes to the attic expecting to find her, doesn't find her, and tells her disappointment when she does see her. So the grandmother says, here's what we're going to do, child. I'm going to give you a ring, and attached to the ring is a thread, attached to a ball of thread. You hold on to the ring, I'll hold on to the ball, all right? She explains, she'll keep the ball, you keep the ring. The grandmother says, now listen, if you ever find yourself in any danger, you must take off the ring, put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your, then you must lay your forefinger upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads. And the child says, this is wonderful, grandmother, because I know you hold the ball and it'll always lead to you. Right? Okay. Now, the, what do we say the title was? The Princess and the Goblins. So you know goblins are involved in this, right? Well, she hears them stalking, squabbling, whatever, making goblin noises one day. 
And she does exactly what her grandmother says. She takes the ring, puts it under the pillow of her bed, and she puts her forefinger on the thread, and she starts going, right? And as she starts going, she sees that it's taking her outside her house and directly to the goblin cave. She starts shaking with fear. She knows that it will lead her to her grandmother and in safety. And she says, oh, here's what happens. She leads it, goes into the cave. And when she gets into the cave and she's fallen it into the cave, it ends up going right to a wall of stones. And she's sitting there going, this is supposed to lead me to my very grandmother. And quote, she says, a thought struck her that at least she could follow the thread backwards and thus get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. So the grandmother's thread only worked forward. It didn't work backwards. And she just started wailing and crying. And then finally she said, I guess the only way is forward through the rocks. Fingers start bleeding. And she keeps going. And she creates a small hole and she starts hearing a noise on the other side. And she hears a voice and it's her friend Gertie. Who is trapped in the goblin cave. And Gertie is shocked. Why, however, did you come here? And Irene replies, my grandmother sent me. I think I found out why. Gertie climbs to the opening that Irene makes, and she starts heading out the cave. But she realizes Irene's not with her. Irene's going back towards the center of the cave. And Irene or Gertie calls out and says, what are you doing there? That's not the way out. That's the way I couldn't get out. I know that, says Irene. But I'm called to follow the thread. And in the end of the story, like a good story, right? It leads to her grandmother. Because her grandmother's trustworthy. We are going to find ourselves in dark and disturbing places. And you're going to find yourself at a dead end. And you're going to say, why am I here? Why did you bring me here? And you're going to hear from Job, trust me. I'm trustworthy. Amen.